Take a network break, grab a virtual donut, and sit back as we hike up the mountain of IT news to get a view from the top. We've got stories today on HPE's mini acquisition spree, the latest supply chain attack, and more. Our sponsor today is iTential. They're a network and cloud automation. iTential software makes it easy for network teams to get insights into your entire infrastructure, immediately detect non-compliant assets for rapid remediation, and manage and deploy changes across both CLI and API infrastructure. You can find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. And we'll tell you a little bit more about iTential in the middle of the show. After the news, we're going to talk with Netscope about why IT can't just take the office network out of mothballs and expect everything to be just fine when your employees show up. Our guest, Han Song Bei, shares a punch list of tasks that you might want to complete before your end users get back to the office. All right, let's get into the news. And before we start, uh, Greg, we've got not so much as an FU or follow-up as a question. Uh, this is relating to a press release from Extreme Networks customer in the MSP space who's using the SPB protocol to set up their MPLS network. And this person's wondering, hey, what's going on here with SPB? Yeah, and this is uh, something that I'm a big fan of. Oh, it's just an interesting discussion. So I thought I'd bring it to the podcast just to open up with some really good networking content on the network break. Because <laughs> there's not a whole lot of network news going on at the moment, Drew. I don't know if you've noticed. but there's We're not in a the, the summer lull, a summer lull. It yes. is a bit of a summer lull. But I think the other thing that's happening here that I haven't quite formulated in my head, but I'll let a little bit of the thought process out of where I think is happening, is a lot of things that would have previously been press releases or marketing pushes are now just becoming patches on subscription services. Mm -hmm. So instead of having to make big launches to try and get customer attention and drive them to upgrades, a lot of customers have subscription services and they just click a button and the new features are enabled on their platform. And so it's much harder to find stories in networking when a lot of the technology, well, I mean, to some extent, networking is kind of, there's nothing innovation coming down except for things like software defined perimeter or, you know, the, the transformation of the branch, but there's not like a finding stories there is a little bit difficult. But so if you've got something that you see, do that, don't hesitate to get in contact packetpushes.net slash FU, where you can use a web page to talk to us or, you know, to send us a, a note and then we can get back to you if you've got any questions. But in this one, the question is about uh, somebody saying that people were deploying an extreme networks product using SPB. And when you actually read between the lines here, my takeaway here is that this is a customer who's been using SPB for some time. And you need to sort of recall back to the day when Nortel came up with Q&Q. They literally developed the Q&Q standard uh, the 802.1aq, I think it is, the IEEE mm -hmm. standard, and that allowed Metro Ethernet to do a single uh, fiber optic connection between two sites and then carry multiple VLANs over. So it was sort of like before DWDM got to where it was, this gave us a way to avoid DWDM and have long-haul Ethernet direct, very low cost, and the whole Metro Ethernet market sprang into life. Today, Metro Ethernet is kind of disappearing a little bit as the D as IP optical starts to dominate that market. And Nortel was one of the very first companies to repurpose its products and to focus on that market, partly to do with its telco heritage, partly to do with the fact that they had this ethernet chassis that could route at wire speed, which was something at the time that Cisco couldn't was the ERS 8600. And so they ended up dominating the Metro ethernet market for a number of years. And Nortel uh, went into financial difficulty. It was then sold to Avea and then subsequently sold to Extreme. And of course, if you have an established network based around that Nortel Avea Extreme technology and you've used SPB, and keep in mind that SPB is the logical extension of Q&Q. &Q, that is, it's layer two encapsulated in layer two. There's no IP here. Huh. There's no 
BGP that you have to configure. There's no EVPN tag propagation. It's all quite automatic. And it's much more like Trill. So Trill came out first, but Trill was a very poor implementation. It was sort of in its way, it was rushed through the ITF to get to market so that we could scale up our L2 fabrics in such a way that people had something. And But it, IEEE just dilly-dallied. You know, I've been fairly critical of the IEEE 802 committee about Ethernet. They're slow. They're opaque. We don't know. It's a for-profit business. The IEEE is actually, you know, restricts the membership. You can't see what's happening. And by the time the IEEE published SPB, uh, really, the world had turned past it. Cisco worked to get Trill into the ITF. It got rapidly approved. There was a wide bit of support. And even though Cisco did start to sell Trill fabrics for a while, ultimately products like ACI and UCS fabric came along and Cisco didn't really want to sell Trill. And that kind of went, mm, uh. so in the end, the whole Ethernet over Ethernet market faded away as people glommed onto the L3 fabric idea. So that would be my take. Yeah, the whole point of Trill and SPB was to replace spanning tree protocol so that you could use all your paths and your data center. And it was network. also a viable alternative to MPLS and superior to MPLS in almost every dimension. Mm-hmm. It was automatically self-configuring. It was inherently secure. It didn't have any of the footprint of MPLS. You know, there were very large networks built. So there's very large Metro Ethernet networks running at scale. It was used in the Olympics at one point to support hundreds of thousands of endpoints absolutely reliably and stably. So, um, yeah, it is a shame that SPB didn't get off the ground. It is the Betamax, if you like. But at the end of the day, not a surprise. The IEEE is slow, opaque, doesn't really, you know, the vendors don't want to glom on. And by the time it got here, Trill had happened, and that was sort of good enough. And then Trill was not really making anybody any money. And so the market moved on to working out how to extract more money from customers. We've moved on to SDN, which eventually got us uh, ACI and, and NSX. Weirdly, SBB would have been better for SDN in almost every dimension. Yeah, and no, I think it was, you've got notes in here that said it was Nortel uh, sold it to Avaya, and then Avaya got picked up mm. by Extreme. So SPB is still around. And in fact, uh, we know folks like Ricky, who does a lot of our audio editing, but is also a network engineer, loves <laughs> SPB <laughs> and will roll out Avaya where and wherever oh, yeah. he can. No, no, no. There are very good reasons to use SPB, and it is a none of the complexity of EVPN. You know, instead of trying to take your Ethernet and encapsulate it in a layer three packet or to take your IP and encapsulate it in IP, which means you have to strip Ethernet headers and you've got VLAN and all that. And then you've got to have BGP and then you've got to propagate. SPB does all that transparently. Yep. So strange world we live in. The best technology rarely wins, just to remind you. <laughs> it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that was quite uh, an FU. Um, so thanks for writing in and uh, sending Greg down an interesting rabbit hole. Yeah, it's a combination of history. And and I spent a lot of time studying SPB because obviously as part of this show, we go into new technologies and try and judge if they're going to be emerging. And I, I've met with the people who are working on the standards back in the day. And yeah, I was. It's a, in hindsight, it's disappointing that it didn't get up. But in equally, it was obvious that it was never going to get up as the same time. <laughs> Right, you're right that the best technology doesn't always win. That's a, an interesting discussion in the IT space. Mm-hmm. All right, again, anyway, if you've got questions, comments, follow-ups, corrections, whatever, hit us up at packofpushers.net slash FU. Uh, we will now pivot to news. You've probably heard by now about the ransomware attack against customers of Kaseya, which provides IT management software to manage service advisors and enterprises. As many as 30 MSPs and approximately 1,500 businesses may have been affected. The attack exploited a vulnerability in Kaseya software that let attackers take over servers, running Kaseya software on customer premises, uh, and now the attackers are demanding 
payments because this is a ransomware event. Yeah, so this is Revil ransomware, which is uh, basically uncrackable. Uh, there's a range of different things. There's some stuff in the show notes about how they use their crypto keys. They actually have a master crypto key which can unlock it, but the way that they handle their crypto keys is that there's a, a master organization who subcontract the exploitation mm-hmm. of the vulnerability. And once the exploitation there is, there's a separate set of keys generated for each customer. And then the customer only gets the keys that can unlock the ransomware that applies to them. Revil, uh, Revil ransomware has been quite widespread. In this case, Kaseya is a company that provides MSPs, managed service providers of technology, two things. It gives them the accounting and business management software, lead generation, customer management, account management, as well as software that enables them to operate people's services, technology services. And you're talking hundreds of service providers using the Kaseya platform are now out of action if they have an on-prem version of this software because the ransomware people got into Kaseya's platform, put the their ransomware inside of Kaseya's software update. The patch was automatically pushed out and all of these companies are now compromised. Yeah, it's another supply chain attack like we saw with SolarWinds. Uh, and I anticipate that we're going to see more of these because that's the way to get the most numbers, which is what ransomware attackers mm-hmm. want. The challenge, there's lots of things sort of that that go on here that come out of this. And, and rather than if you want to find out more about the actual attack and all that sort of stuff, and obviously customers here are getting the raw edge. The, like the MSPs have got no control over their businesses when they outsource their core business activity to somebody else. That's it. They're just not, all they're doing is putting bodies around someone else's software, which sounds like a good idea if you're a business manager, because they go like, oh, we're not people who run businesses. We just want to rent bodies out and make money. And they're, they're dependent, fully dependent on Kaseya to make these systems work. Uh, you get into Kaseya's response and it's becoming clear that their competency is Not bad per se, like they're not obviously totally incompetent, but their competency to fix it is very poor. They've been promising to fix it every day now for the last seven days. And they're now saying that it won't be until Sunday. Today's Friday. They don't believe that they'll have the right patch. They keep saying the patch will be tomorrow. And when tomorrow comes, they say, we've had to pull the patch. And then the managing director, the CEO then releases a video saying, it's my fault. I decided to pull it. There's a whole bunch of like, dodgy stuff happening here and it's starting to run hollow to me. And the challenge here is that while they appear to be giving us high degrees transparency and explaining exactly what's going on, they didn't really have a choice because there's so many managed service providers out of action that it's rather obvious that they're the cause, right? It's not like they could hide. Right. Did you notice they engaged the FBI as well? I did not notice that, but I'm not surprised. The CEO says, we have engaged with the FBI and are working with them in an incident handling process. Now, this is the correct thing to do. But it also feels like a bit of blame sharing. It's like, oh, it's so bad. We had to get the FBI in. Like, you know, it's it's a it's a delightful piece of blame deflection, really. You know, like I've told the teachers and they're gonna get you, sort of thing. You know what I mean? Well, it's definitely a way of saying, you know, we're a victim here too, yeah. uh, even though they're also the the cause of it. Well, it is a and it and it is a state. You know, Kaseya is a global company, and this can be seen as a state level attack in the sense that Kaseya. Is, is a company that supplies hundreds of managed service providers who then manage thousands of businesses, technology infrastructure. So this actually has the ability to take down entire economies of countries globally, not just the US. This, this Kaseya is a global company all around the world. And there's a, some very vague um, legal issues here because if the FBI starts getting access to Kaseya's data, 
and they start getting access to sovereign data of other countries, there's a whole bunch of interesting uh, privacy issues related up here. There's privacy issues. There's also, I think, liability issues. Like I presume the MSPs who are serving their customers have indemnity language in their contracts with their customers. And I also assume that Kaseya probably has indemnity language with its MSPs. So where the blame lands and who in the end is going to be responsible for uh, re- reimbursing whatever customers have decided to pay the ransomware or the costs mm-hmm. that they have to restore their services is going to be very tricky and involve a lot of lawyers. Yeah, it's going to involve a lot of lawyers. And of course, the Kaseya would supply its software on a best effort, no promises, no commitments, no warranties, no guarantees basis. So congratulations with trying to sue them for it. As we've talked many times about this before is that come, you know, technology vendors take zero responsibility and offer zero guarantees. You pay a high price for what is theoretically high value software with zero guarantees that'll actually work. And a couple of other issues that this raises in that particularly with the ransomware, we're now seeing cyber attacks begin to spill more over into meat space. So this Kaseya attack resulted in a a large grocery store chain in Sweden being shut down. Uh, Other ransomware attacks in the US have affected gasoline prices, have affected food manufacturing. Uh, So it's not just about, I I can't buy this item online. It's actually hitting the real world, which is going to bring more scrutiny, more pressure, which it should on software developers and their responsibility for providing secure code and having secure operations so that they don't get invaded and then used to spread malware across thousands and thousands of entities. And notably, most of this seems to be happening in the USA. So (laughs) just leave that there. (laughs) Right. Yeah, we don't seem to see a lot of report. Now, I'm sure there is other things going on all around the world. We've seen, you know, uh, various ransomware attacks in Ireland and the UK and throughout Europe. But the vast majority of them seem to come from the US. Is that just because the reporter, the reportage comes from there? Or is it because that's where all the activity is happening? It's not clear to me which way. Yeah. All right. Uh, plenty of links in the show notes if you want to read up about it. Uh, we'll move on. We'll talk about HPE. They spent uh, $374 million to acquire the cloud backup and data management company Zerto in an all-cash transaction. Zerto is going to be available as part of HPE's GreenLake platform. Uh, they also, Zerto, targets managed service providers and enterprises. They have an as-a-service offering for cloud-based backup, disaster recovery, and data management for your on-prem and cloud-based data. This is a nice little tuck-in acquisition for HPE as part of their GreenLake Esmeralda platform. This is the idea that they'll supply you with a turnkey cloud platform on-prem, so you don't actually go and buy servers and then provision VMs. They just charge you a consumption fee for whatever it is that you want in this platform, in the platform that they're creating. And part of that includes the provision of software that you can use. And obviously, if you have an on-premise but Uh, subscription-based deployment, you would like to be able to use cloud-based backup or to have software to do disaster recovery between your data centers or between your co-location facilities and data management, you know, recovering from or archiving files for recovery. And Zerto has been a provider in this space and was once a, well, a quite substantial player in this space, but since faded away, it was an Israeli company, was one of the leading players in the space. Uh, and, you know, but the this product was kind of eclipsed by other companies saying, well, we can just put data protection into our software and it doesn't have to be a product. It's more of a feature. So this is one of these products that's more of a feature than an entire product in its own. And that's what hmm. HP is doing with it, I think. Yeah, it's also, if you read the press release, you'll note that they mention uh, one of Zerto's capabilities is to help you recover from ransomware attacks. So uh, I'm 
pretty sure HP he didn't time this release to also coincide with the ransomware attack, but it is a I'm sure that was part of HP's thinking in buying this acquisition in that mm-hmm. disaster recovery and good backup practices are one of the things that are needed to help you recover from a ransomware attack. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on here. This is HP's Esmeral and GreenLake is this idea that you just pay a subscription fee. And if you need more hardware to run this, they'll just ship you more hardware and then arrange for it to be installed in your premises. So that ma- that makes a lot of sense for some customers who want to move away from that capital purchasing and move to a subscription or have build an on-premise right. plan. Because there's another acquisition this week by HPE, a company called Ampool, and they make a cloud-native SQL analytics engine for data, data analytics, and they'll fold that into the Esmeral platform. So this idea is that you could be able to buy enough compute. And now what you do is click a button and suddenly you've got a data analytics platform deployed. Now that mirrors what you get from your public clouds, right? So your Google, Amazon, and Microsoft off-premises clouds, they have all these extra services in there, you know, the DNSs and the load balancing and the CDNs and the, you know, the serverless environments and all that sort of stuff. HPE is acquiring companies in that space. So instead of having to say, oh, I have to come and now deploy this platform, you could more or less click a button and HP will be able to supply you with a SQL, a SQL analytics engine that can do, uh, as it says here, Ampool is on a mission to enable real-time data-intensive applications and to reduce time to actionable insights through a distributed memory-centric active data store. Anyway, basically, it just analyzes the data in your data stores and comes up with metadata management query engines to be able to extract reports. So if you want to analyze your customer base or work out how much product's been sold or analyze some sort of data that you've collected, this is an engine to be able to do that for your existing engines. Yeah, it also shows how HPE can expand upon its GreenLake strategy in that they can sell you uh, infrastructure and run it as a service while it's still on your premises, but on, and then build on mm. top of that infrastructure, application services, data analytics services that make that infrastructure that you're renting from HP even more valuable and thus more sticky. So it's I also, think it's a, a smart move. Yeah. And it's also differentiated from Dell and Cisco because they're right. not delivering their stuff. They're trying to put all their stuff in the cloud, which is kind of feels a bit three years ago now, right? What HP mm-hmm. is saying is the future is still on-prem. There's a certain amount of people who just need a thing doesn't have to be in the cloud. We need it on premise. So they're going to say, well, we can deliver you all of these services that you want um, and you can just use them and click a button and you've got yourself a data analytics or you've got yourself a cloud uh, backup and data recovery engine and so on and so forth. Yeah, I agree. It's a great differentiator from Dell and from folks in the uh, uh, hyper-converged space because it's not just the hardware, it's the business model of essentially renting it or paying what you eat, but then also getting services on top that are also available as a click. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got more news, but a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, iTential. Today's network spans physical, virtual, and multi-cloud infrastructure. That complexity can make it hard to automate reliably. iTential's automation platform makes complicated networks more manageable. They give you insight into your entire infrastructure so you can immediately detect non-compliant assets for rapid remediation and manage and deploy changes across both CLI and API infrastructure. The iTential platform gives you the trust and confidence you need for automation, and that trust and confidence is essential because when you're automating, you don't want to automate mistakes. For example, they've got a configuration manager. It integrates configuration validation right into the automation process. You get operational consistency across your physical and cloud networks. They also have a low-code automation studio to give you an easy on-ramp to network automation with drag-and-drop capabilities and a library of pre-built automation workflows and integrations to any IT system. Attential delivers end-to-end automation across all your networks. 
Know your network, automate your network with Itential. You can find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. We thank Itential for being a sponsor. In other acquisition news, Fortinet has announced the acquisition of Scan.ai. This is a security startup and their software scans application code for potential vulnerabilities. And the idea is you integrate Scan.ai uh, with your developers CI/CD pipeline so that security checks can happen throughout the development lifecycle. So we're seeing most security companies move outside or three, two. What we're seeing here is that firewall companies are now taking a much bigger place in the security ecosystem, where before they used to say, we built firewalls and everything that's not a firewall is not security. They're getting much more <laughs> integrated into the security lifecycle as they look for growth, because obviously firewalls and the idea of a perimeter is becoming very uh, obsolete. We're moving into SD-WAN and the branch and software-defined perimeters, and it's a lot more about content scanning. And in this case, AppSec is also part of the portfolio where you, if you have a team of developers, you want to be able to run the code through some sort of testing pattern and look for common or known problems in the development and then flag that up to developers and say, this is a vulnerability or potential vulnerability uh, and here's what it might be. And the use of AI for this is probably relevant in terms of being able to deliver this in such a way that you're reducing the cost of finding the vulnerabilities, like collecting uh, code samples and and analyzing the code to know if this is a bad pattern or a bad algorithm is actually probably not something that humans can do. So I think if you're doing internal app development and you need to be able to validate your developers are following the rules, then this might be something to have a look at. Yeah, uh, I see why Fortinet bought the company. Uh, it, it fits into their portfolio. It allows them to expand into a different market. And also because this is cloud-based, I wonder if Fortinet is going to get anonymized data about the kinds of bugs and vulns that this service is seeing, which you know they're going to strip out any company information. But having that kind of data set could be very useful to them in other areas and other services they provide. Mm. Yeah, it is a but it is a transformation. Like again, Fortinet historically built all of its technology in-house this idea of acquiring companies and then also this moving to work with developers that's a whole that's going to be a unique change for them this will be a, a very unique challenge for them to transform their internal organization to adapt to that right i don't know that fortinet has a lot of experience or links into selling to developer teams mm. uh, there's also questions about you know if you're going to sell a developer some kind of security tool we know that developers just want to develop they don't want to be have their processes slowed down dragged down by you know lots of alerts about bugs and fixes and so on uh, so there's also organization changes that need to happen in uh, demanding mm -hmm. security best practices in your code development. Yeah. So I know that I've always never wanted to have anything to do with developers because they just get in the way and slow me down. <laughs> just, just to put the other side of that, okay? It's just, it's just, I love it when we always talk about, oh, the developers don't. And I go like, yeah, but the other side of that is we don't want them doing it to us here. <laughs> exactly. It's one of those things. But this it idea, I mean, ways. this has got legs. I mean, analyzing the code, looking for vulnerabilities in the development cycle, checking your Python or your Rust or your Go, whatever it is, looking for that sort of stuff. That's pretty cool. I think it's a great idea. These kinds of analytics tools to help you look for bugs in code have been around for ages. And as far as I can tell, haven't gotten a lot of uptick. And I think it's mostly an organizational issue. Um, but, you know, it's good for Fortinet for giving it a try. Yeah, well, it integrates into their other products because they have their security fabric and their pen test. So you can actually deploy this and then run a pen test product against it and so on and so forth. So it's, not, it's interesting.
Yeah. Uh, links in the show notes if you want to see more. We'll move on. Uh, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has charged chipmaker Broadcom with illegally monopolizing the market for chips used in set-top cable boxes and broadband modems. The, FTT's, the FTC is alleging that Broadcom has struck long-term agreements with equipment manufacturers and broadband and cable service providers that, quote, prevented these customers from purchasing chips from Broadcom's competitors. The FTC is alleging that Broadcom entered into such deals with at least 10 OEMs. This is an interesting one. Uh, we've touched before on the fact that companies like Broadcom and its uh, companies in the same market, Qualcomm and Intel, tend to have these very um, difficult supply agreements. If you're a customer of these companies, uh, these companies want to be able to control where their products are sold and what products those chips are used in. They don't let the vendors like Dell and Cisco and you know and the other networking and computer vendors build the products that they might choose, they restrict them on what they can do and what the, how they work. And um, they're not sold free of obligation. They must use APIs and there's various licenses and obligations. And that can easily be interpreted as a monopoly agreement. And it's certainly true. So for example, I'm hearing a lot of feedback from people in the Wi-Fi industry saying that Qualcomm Wi-Fi chipsets, Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E chipsets are now on a hundred week lead time. That's two years. Uh, mm. And if you're a small Wi-Fi vendor, you may not be able to negotiate with Qualcomm sales team to get a good position in the queue, right? Qualcomm saying, well, if you bought, and they're doing things like saying, well, if you bought more, we'd be able to move you up the queue. Or if you paid a higher price, we'd be able to move you up the queue. Or you're not one of our favorite customers. So, Right. Or if you promise to buy some other components that you could get elsewhere from us, mm. we'll move you up the queue, which is, sounds like what this kind of arrangement Broadcom was striking with its OEMs. Yeah. And the silicon industry is actually rife with this. This is exactly what's been going on for 20 years. <laughs> uh, the general uh, feedback I've read from various people, particularly John Brodkin's article in ARS Technica, he mentions that this is unlikely to get legs. He feels that, um, and he's much more qualified to express an opinion than I am, but he generally feels that this is unlikely to go too far. And ultimately what the FTC is doing is saying to Broadcom and the related companies, Qualcomm, Intel, Talera, and so forth, Marvell, to stop getting into this because we're looking, we're watching. It's more of a shot across the bows than perhaps something that will go all the way. Yeah, so the government, the FTC uh, has proposed a settlement uh, in the same allegation document that they're rolling out. And the settlement is essentially telling Broadcom, knock it off uh, and don't retaliate against customers that use competing chips. And if you agree to this settlement, then we can all just move on and we don't have to yeah. come after you with fines or other regulatory issues. So I think it is a shot across the bow saying, stop this practice. Let's settle this amicably or we'll take it further if we need to. Uh, Reuters says that Broadcom uh, disagrees that it violated the law, but quote, looks forward to putting this matter behind us, end quote. <laughs> so Broadcom may just decide to shake hands and, bit, and promise to stop doing yeah, it. Yeah, it sounds a bit like they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and then suddenly the system is snapped back, right? So yes, they pushed this I think, and, I think and so. now they've found the limits of what the, the government uh, processes will stand and the limits of what capitalism will support. So we've heard very similar stories around uh, the assets that go into switches and smart NICs and all of the networking technology that we use where those makers of those silicon have conducted the same practices. And in this case, the FTC has just chosen to target the chips in set-top cable boxes and broadband modems, uh, probably because they can draw a direct line to voter interest or citizen interest. Um, I think so. Yeah. But uh, certainly the practice is rife across the industry and it's not limited to Broadcom. Although Broadcom's the main character here, I would suggest that all of the silicon makers are looking at this and going like, okay, might need to hold up, a, you know, might need to back off a little. 
Right. I think the FTC is saying we're going to be taking a more muscular approach going forward to anti-competitive practices. So heads up, here's a warning. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's what it feels like. All right, moving on. Uh, after several years and lots of legal bickering, the U.S. Defense Department is canceling a $10 billion contract that it signed with Microsoft in 2019 for cloud services, and they are essentially starting the process all over. Uh, one of the reasons they're canceling it is because uh, Amazon's AWS, which was one of the initial bidders, has repeatedly raised legal challenges over the bidding process uh, and just essentially stuck a spanner in the works. Yeah, well, this, of course, has been a very political process. The U.S. president of the time was making a wide number of public statements about who won it and who didn't win it. And, you know, obviously um, the whole process is mired in not just politics, but pork barreling. And um, also the DOD is just a, such a vast institution. I think um, the idea of a single cloud has changed. Like, do you remember three years ago, everybody was going, no, if you're going to go to the cloud, you're only going to choose one cloud. And now what we tend to see is a much more mature and ultimately the thing that we've been saying here for a very long period of time is you're always going to be multi-cloud. You're going to have on-prem, you're going to have off-prem, and your off-prem is going to be spread across Microsoft, Google, Amazon. You just, It's just going to be everywhere. And that is a challenge that you're going to have to solve. And I think in that sense, this contract actually recognizes that as well, in that the time for just having a single supplier agreement here has passed. You can't just cut a deal with AWS anymore because AWS doesn't have all the technology. Microsoft has lots of technology that you want and Google's got a better AI engine and so forth and so on. Yeah, I mean, and that's what the Defense Department is essentially saying, that the strategy for this uh, contract, which is called JEDI, has changed and that the initial vision was for a single cloud because it would be you know, easier operationally to have it all in one cloud. But now they're saying technology and strategy has changed and makes more sense to go with multiple clouds. You know, and I guess I can see that, but I also sort of think you can make a strong case for a single cloud, particularly with this kind of government contract, because part of the issue was they wanted to eliminate internal government stovepipes of information. But if you're spreading stuff across multiple clouds and we know how difficult it is to integrate multiple clouds, then you're going to sort of end up with the same problem. It's just not on-prem anymore. It's in the cloud. But that integrating multiple clouds is fading away, right? So the realism, the realism is that five years ago, there were so few people with skills and the knowledge of how it worked, that it would have been very difficult to build up a team that could have been able to migrate to a single cloud. Whereas three years later, after all the bickering and the lawsuits and Oracle and AWS and so forth, it's now become re realistic to expect that all of the clouds have to be used. And, um, you know, and I mean, at the end of the day too, US tech companies have an insatiable appetite for taxpayer money. And they often use legal and political means to make sure that they get free money. But they're also the people who don't pay tax. There's, there's a whole bunch of hypocrisy here, right? Bidding for a $10 billion US government contract, which is taxpayer money, but they don't pay tax, is kind of a bit of a, you know, is, is a, you know, it just creeps me out every single time. It's like, oh, well, and they're going to say, like, oh, we did, we deliver value and all that sort of stuff. And I'm going, yeah, but you didn't contribute to the societal wealth. Anyway, that's a story for a different day. I do believe ultimately here is that. The, the multi-cloud is the way people are going to go. People are going to have off-prem. They're going to have on-prem. There are things that can migrate. There are things that can't migrate. The original intention was that the DOD would move everything into the cloud. And I think the reality is starting to sink in that that's deeply impractical. And the best they can do is start a process of moving to more cloud-like infrastructure wherever it might be. If that's on-prem, then it's on-prem. And if it's off-prem, then it's off-prem and so forth and so on. I mean, in principle, I agree that multi-cloud is 
the inevitable way to go, um, particularly in the enterprise space where you're going to acquire a company or whatever that's in a different cloud, or there's a specific use case that you can make a business decision on uh, that justifies going with multiple clouds. My concern with this particular government contract is that when you open it up to multiple clouds, there's the opportunity for lobbyists and other folks, politicians to get in on the deal and that the cloud decisions will be made more on uh, politics and lobbying than on what's the best use case and the best uh, home for this workload. Rather, uh, you know, uh, instead of a technical decision, it becomes uh, we need to spread this money around because we've got some Congress people in the district. Yeah. Any substantially sized defense contract here in the UK, any defense contract is given to British suppliers by preference. Ships are made in Scottish shipyards by preference, you know, or the, or the Portsmouth or in Glasgow and, you know, they're inherently political decisions when when they get over a certain scale. So you can't get away from that. I mean, yeah. Links in the show notes if you want to find out more. Uh, our last story for the day, uh, a South Korean court says Netflix is obligated to pay network usage fees to SK Broadband, that's a Korean internet service provider, to carry Netflix traffic in the country. The court estimated that fees could be up to 200 billion South Korean won, which is approximately 175 million US dollars. Of course, Netflix is likely to appeal this ruling. Yeah, of course they will. <laughs> Netflix doesn't want to set a precedent here, even if it's outside of US jurisdiction or EU right. jurisdiction. They don't want to have a telco in the world saying, <laughs> we can charge Netflix to carry across the top. And at the same time, Netflix will be able to rally Google, Facebook and other uh, tech yes. brands to come in <laughs> here, right? Uh, as the article points out is that Netflix traffic does consist of over 5% of traffic on the national networks. So, but uh, it strikes me that telcos want to have this both ways. One of the things that they do here is they charge customers for bandwidth and now they want to charge content providers for the same thing. That's like, right. you know, charging both sides of the transaction. And there's something that feels strange about that, or I can't reconcile that as a viable business strategy. I mean, this is the net neutrality issue that we've been having in the United States where I, as a consumer, and buying broadband so I can do things like watch Netflix. Mm -hmm. So why should Netflix have to pay to use the broadband service that I'm already paying for because I want to use the broadband service for those things? Uh, it also has competitive issues where mm. a competitor to Netflix would have the additional hurdle of having to pay these kind of carrier fees. Um, so yeah, I, I'm all for net neutrality. I think South Korea is making the wrong decision here, the mm. South Korean court. I'm just, but I mean, who's your customer? Do you start tuning your network for Netflix? instead of for the customer email because Netflix is paying you and the customers, do you know what I mean? Like, right. There's that option. Yeah. There's also those issues, right? So yes. that, you know, that's the thing. Once, once this floodgate opens where it's the, a broadband company can say, Hey, Netflix, uh, I, I'll give you, you know, it opens up this whole issue that net neutrality is supposed to prevent of classes of service from hmm. your broadband carrier on things that you want yeah. as a consumer. I mean, imagine paying for your refrigerator to put in your house to store your food in and you put food in it. But then the refrigerator company also then charges food, food supplies for the right to use that fridge. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Like, that's what you're saying here. Right. It's, but I mean, that's exactly it. <laughs> so I assume that the, you know, the telcos can make some sort of argument that, you know, we have a massive consumer, but you know, that's like saying the road network, the trucks use up 20% of the road network delivering parcels. So we should charge truck drivers more. Well, yeah, but nah, you know what I mean? Because mm, it all just gets a bit weird at that point. The whole point of selling broadband services is because customers want to use the broadband. So sell that service. Uh, stop trying to double mm. dip. I, I just feel like you're right. But to me here, it's just a conflict of interest, which, you know, if you start designing networks that 
lean towards who pays you more. What if Netflix pays you more? Exactly. Facebook pays you more or Google pays right. to have Facebook's traffic deprioritized, right? Why not? Right, exactly. You know? yep. uh, and then what happens right. if a competitor emerges who can't pay because they're still being funded and they're doing a startup and then yada, yada, yada. So, yeah. It opens all kinds of unpleasant doors. Does. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll keep an eye on this and see what happens. All right. That wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for a Tech Bytes conversation with Netscope on things to get done before your end users start showing up in the office. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers, sponsored today by Netscope. If you're assuming that IT is just going to go back to normal as employees return to the office, you may want to rethink that assumption. Just like the pandemic caused changes in user behavior and traffic patterns, the return to the office, whether it's full-time or hybrid, is going to create a new set of changes. Uh, we discuss what this might look like with our guest, Hansang Bei. He is field CTO at Netscope. Hansang, welcome to the podcast, and let's jump right in. Why do you expect things aren't just going to go back to normal for IT as more employees get back to the office? Absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me on here. My other interest besides technology and security, of course, is woodworking. And I watch a lot of YouTube videos on framing houses and building houses. And uh, I've managed to convince myself that I can actually build a house uh, <laughs> right now. Um, but having said that, the one lesson learned I, I took away was that all the builders have what's called a punch list. So a punch list is something that a day before they turn over the keys to the uh, owners, they go through the house, run around the house and do these little things that don't come into play from a structural or functional sense, but aesthetics, right? So light switches, make sure they're all leveled, make sure they're all covered. Uh, any nicks and dings and you know, paint touch-ups that they need to happen, any nails that are popped up, uh, cleaning, vacuuming, those little things that, again, have nothing to do with the functioning of the house, but to goes to user experience. And I thought about this, and, you know, a lot of your listeners are probably thinking, hey, Hansang, it worked 18 months ago when we left. It was hell. Infrastructure was choked at VPN, and we had to do split tunnel, and we had to do this, we had to do that, and all that fire drills over and done with. It worked before. When they come back, it's going to be fine. What's the big deal? And here's the big deal. The punch list. You need a punch list because things go static. When things are static, things break. Some quick hit and run examples I can give you. Make sure your firewall IDS, IPS, and proxies have been updated because if no one's been around, they may be sitting there waiting to be updated, which means in the case of some, in some infrastructures, not so much on the router or switch side, certainly on the access point side, you have to reboot them. So why not do that before your users show up, right? So there's an infrastructure-based punch list where you have to just run around and make sure everything's up to date. But there are some sneaky ones that are hanging out there that you may not have thought about. The one that comes to mind is global address books and global address list. So why does that matter? So it turns out that in most messaging platforms, Exchange comes to mind, you get a Delta address book every day and you subsume the address list. People leave, people go, people come, they get added. It's a small file that gets added, just a Delta file. But if you don't get an update for seven days in a row, for example, you download the entire address book. So for a large company, that could be over a hundred megabyte file that every user has to download. Okay, so even with, you know, one gig, two gig or four gig, 10 gig services, when you have hundreds of users downloading a hundred meg file each, uh, that can choke any network. Okay, and the other thing is 
hey, Hansak, don't worry about it. All these laptops, we manage them remotely. We 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 invested in remote tech, you know, maintaining of the laptops, et cetera, and and all the address books, all the patches are up to date. Okay, great. What about all those PCs that the users are going to fire up when they get back to the office? Those probably have been sitting dormant for quite some time. And if you have the luxury of Wake on LAN, technology that sort of kind of took off and never really became mainstream. So I don't know if, you know, many of the users can depend on it. When those PCs light up for the first time in maybe 18 months, not only are you going to have massive Windows updates, massive (laughs) Mac updates, but you're also going to have address books and they all kick off in a randomized fashion within the first hour. So do the math, folks. If you have a thousand user campus location and you have 60 minutes to randomize it, that's not a whole lot of slots and you're going to face a total congestion of the network, right? Absolutely. That's actually something I hadn't considered is that first day back when a whole bunch of people are turning on their desktops and all of a sudden it's like, hey, Windows has to spend the next hour downloading updates. That's productivity right out the window. Absolutely. And not to mention... The day lose your phone calls to the help desk with what kind of call? Hey, the network is slow, <laughs> right? And, and, and here's another thing. Here's another beauty that your uh, network folks should be aware of. Every antivirus, when you first fire up, says, hey, a scan hasn't been run in an year. I'm going to do a full scan, and the CPU is going to spike, and everything on that computer is going to suck. Your voice over IP application will absolutely suck, not because the network is bad, but because the CPU cycles are all going to a full scan that every antivirus will uh, be doing. Not only that, but the entire PC slows down. From, so from an end user perspective, here comes the, the network is slow. How slow? I don't know. It's just slow. Where is it slow? Everything is slow. We've all gone through those um, help desk tickets and triage. So make sure you give your help desk Uh, folks, some heads up on how to triage these types of phone calls because they're inevitable. So those are some of the technical issues, uh, sort of the technical housekeeping things. Do you anticipate kind of behavioral changes from users too? I'm thinking like, you know, everybody's used to being on Zoom. Maybe instead of trying to get a conference room, we'll just do Zoom calls. And what does that mean for your network uh, in the office? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I used to work in New York City, um, down in Greenwich Village, I had a coffee cart. It was my guy. So there were 10 coffee carts in front of the building, you know, tens of thousands of users going in and out of this uh, office. And every morning I dutifully went to my coffee cart guy and he had my coffee just the way I like it. My donut that my wife doesn't know about that I had for <laughs> 10 years every day. And I went there because it was a habit, right? We are creatures of habit. And the problem with that is that once you get used to something, it's very hard to go back um, if you ever had got a, you know, fortunate enough to get an upgrade to business class, man, that first time back at coach, it sucks even more, right? Because you get used to what you get used to. So the reason why I bring this up is because we used to live in a world, right? Not too long ago where you brought stuff, you brought your laptop to work so you can download things because it was much faster. Now we absolutely live in a world for your vast majority of your listeners, where they will save the full, you know, big file downloads if, until they get home. Cause we have gigabit, 500 megabit, 400 megabit, you know, services that's all to yourself. So you, everybody had to do split tunnels and direct to internet out of necessity, maybe at the risk of a little bit more exposure, 
you know, those zooms, even though they're about one and a half to two megabit continuous, being back all through VPN made no sense. So a lot of people said, you know what, Zoom, WebEx, just Teams calls, just go direct to internet. And they got used to that, right? They got used to that that video, the audio, the lack of glitchiness, et cetera. And now they're all going to come back to the campus and they're going to do exactly what you just said. Hey, the, the meeting location is, you know, upstairs. Eh, I don't want to go. I'll just do it from, from my desktop. And that's going to be taxing to your internet and firewall choke points. And people are going to complain again because they got used to that direct internet from their, you know, gigabit type services at home. So it's nothing you can do other than set the expectation when the users come back and have, and that's all you have to do is set the expectation and people will know, oh, okay, I don't have to complain about every last thing and certainly let your help desk know so that they can triage that those problems as well. Well, Hans saying there's got to be something we can do, right? In, in other words, we're coming back to an infrastructure that we built, we've got some familiarity with, and the way we were talking about it earlier, we're kind of taking it out of out of mothballs. We're bringing it back. Oh, everybody wake up, you know, hey, PCs, you know, flex, and uh, let's get ready and get back to doing some work. Uh, and so what I mean, there's got to be something we can do. There is insight about the infrastructure we can gain, right? Some kind of visibility, context about what's going on, so that as these hopefully temporary issues come up, we can diagnose correctly and make the changes we need to uh, to facilitate getting back into the office and having things work well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it takes a little bit of effort and hence why we're having this talk, right? Because uh, give your users a heads up on, on planning. Some tactical things to think about. So you can contact your messaging um, company, the, the software that you use, they all have a certain port uh, and certain, you know, it'll all be encrypted, but it'll have um, a, a VIP. If you're using a VIP, you probably are. If not, you'll have a, a particular server where address books come down. Start your quality of service to put those in kind of a bulk, you know, garbage collection type queues so that it doesn't impact. If you have the ability to bypass WebEx and um, Zoom type calls through your IPS IDS, and you, so in other words, try to limit the latency as much as possible while it's going through your security stack, see if you can do that. Um, and, and these are some of the, th and make sure that users know that, hey, for the first six, four hours or so, your computer may be slow just because it's updating. So please don't call us, wait at least till, you know, the afternoon before you do that. So these are some of the tactical things that we can do, but you had better jump on it now, because as we know, rolling out TOS changes isn't for the faint of heart. And uh, it's easy if you have five routers, right? The problem is if you have hundreds and thousands of routers, then you really need to get on the ball now. Well, the sad but thing again, is it's not even easy if you've got five routers because get to get that well, profile right yeah. out of the gate is tough. And then, yeah. right, and if you do have thousands of devices to roll it out across, it's, uh, it becomes a big deal, even once you do lock in that policy. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, TOS is, um, I hate it. I think it's a failed technology. <laughs> it's, um, and if somebody tells you, and I've jokingly said this, but I'm not joking. If somebody says, oh, no, no, my QoS is good. Either you're delusional or you're lying. Um, or you don't know what the hell you're doing. Uh, and that's how bad of a technology QoS is. And the fundamental problem is you as a network guy, you're in charge of that plumbing, the pipe. How do you know what's business critical? Right? And every, every 
application owner, every business unit leader will say, my app is important. Make sure I get top billing. And you have 50 of those people all telling you they're business critical. And so guess what? Your business critical is no longer business critical. So again, I think, you know, we, I don't want to go off on a rant on quality of service, uh, but certainly on the security side, things, uh, PC patching, you know, get ahead of that because just don't be lulled into safety thinking it worked a year ago. Everything's going to be fine when we light it up and it won't. So what about the fact that a lot of folks will be in a hybrid environment where sometimes they're in the office, sometimes they're at home, uh, and if they've got a help desk issue, how can the help desk get that context to know, oh, I'm working with somebody who's on a home broadband versus somebody who's in the office? Yeah, one good way to do that is um, if they're a Chrome user, there's actually a treasure trove of debug log that you can get uh, remotely from Chrome browser users, right? Because it may be just a bad Wi-Fi experience, nothing else. And if you haven't invested in end user experience monitoring, and this again, these are things that if you've invested in that, you're kind of sad because you can quickly say, oh, your CPU is really, really high because it's updating or it's running a full scan. Please wait for an hour and call us back. Um, but if you haven't, you have some logs that you can depend on. And if nothing else, you know, if you have no other tools at your disposal, have some batch files or just, you know, clickable icons available for the users that, for example, query an internal only DNS name. And if they can't query it, guess what? They're not VPNed in, they're going direct to internet. So if they call about, I can't access this application and they can't resolve that name, then you know the help desk can say, oh, it looks like you're not using VPN, please turn on your VPN, et cetera, right? So when people come and go back and forth, if that VPN experience isn't seamless, then people will forget, right? Because they'll just take the laptop home and they've been out of that, that, routine of when I come home, these are the things that I must do to connect to the network. And that's where the problem is that technology is waiting. It's just that user behavior has changed and they may not know to turn, you know, the VPN on or, or zero trust. If you've invested in zero trust, you should be all set. But if you're, um, if you're still counting on the traditional VPN, uh, user training may be required to turn it off and turn it back on. So we've mentioned VPN, we've talked about, you know, those AV updates, firewall updates. Are there other security issues or does the risk posture change a bit with folks moving now so seamlessly between home and office in ways that uh, IT may not have anticipated? Yeah, I think it comes down to um, ultimately the best solution is you need a guardian angel to follow every user, right? And kind of watch over them and say, hey, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to put this PII data or this HIPAA data or this HR data on a world readable uh, file share, for example? So if you have the ability to have um, a security product that can coach users in real time as they upload or download, um, you need to invest in those technologies because, again, when you're hybrid, we're, you know, it, all, everything points to hybrid is the new normal. So you need to be that frictionless IT, right? And what, I mean, what do I mean by frictionless IT? As technologists, we think, oh, this is easy. How can you not know how to do X, Y, Z? And I will tell you that having tried to troubleshoot a family member's TV over like FaceTime videos, uh, conferencing over the phone, it's, it can be maddeningly hard to guide somebody who's not tech, tech savvy over uh -huh. the phone. 
right? So again, you know, investing in technology now, not only for the end user experience, of course, you know, the, the uh, computer management, et cetera, but also security that follows the user and understands the context. So you can say, oh, you know what? I'm going to give you zero trust because you're offsite. Oh, you're onsite. You don't need zero trust. Go right ahead and use the uh, network. I'm not going to scan for this file because I see you're on-prem, but if you're off-prem, oh, I'm going to make sure that DLP kicks in to protect the end user, right? So make sure that technology you choose is going to provide that frictionless IT experience for your users and maybe more importantly, so that you won't get that, oh, the network doesn't work, network is slow calls. Got it. Well, that does bring us to the end of the conversation and I hope that there are folks out there scrambling to make lists uh, to get their punch list together, hopefully not while they're driving. But uh, thank you, Hansong, for this information. Uh, If folks wanna find out more about Netscope and maybe follow you if you've got a blog or a Twitter, where would they go? Yeah, if um, for this specific punch list, I've written something up um, again, so you don't have to do it while you're driving is netscope.com slash packet pushers. Uh, that's the URL, simple enough. And when you go there, you'll see my punch list and a little bit more detail. I, 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 you know, for the sake of brevity, I left out some other ones. Uh, so make sure you check out netscope.com slash packet pushers for the entire punch list. And if you have additional ones, contact me and maybe we can start um a groupware type list that everybody can contribute to. Fantastic. That's netscope.com slash packet pushers and Netscope with a K, not a C, just so you know. Uh, Thank you, Hansong, uh, for your time. And thanks to Netscope for being a sponsor. And thank you for being a listener. If you like this show, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.